right. Good morning, church family. While the kids are making their way out, there's one more announcement that I need to add to what Raymond already brought this morning, a little bit of a clarification on Samaritan's Purse. So there are some of you who are writing checks out directly to Samaritan's Purse. When you are writing the checks out, write it out to Timberline Baptist Church. We're also covering the cost of shipping and things like that. And then in the, in the memo, you can put Samaritan's Purse so that we know how to direct those funds. Um, but we just don't want to have to go back and have to void checks and things like that. So just a little bit of an announcement there. And um, I really appreciated what Woody had to say this morning um, regarding the life of Jesus, that parentheses, right, um, there in the Apostles' Creed. Um, we had a Kairos experience just this past Saturday, when I say we, me and my wife, and several other volunteers who are going into prisons. It's, a, it's called Kairos Prison Ministry. This is a way for us to join together as God's family to go into the prison and meet with our brothers and sisters in Christ there, and then to encourage them in the faith. And there's something very unique about this particular ministry. It's interdenominational. That means that there's more than just Baptists going into the prison. There's Baptists, there's Lutherans, there's Presbyterians, there's Methodists, some from Foursquare, and even some from the Roman Catholic Church who hold two very specific doctrines that are laid out in, in, in the Kairos belief system. So, you know, there is an aspect by which they have to hold to those beliefs, and we go in there. And as we prepare to go inside of the prisons, it's about a three-month process. So we start meeting three months in advance of going into the prison. And you would think that you spend three months talking about what it is that you're going to experience when you go into the prison. What are some of the rules of the prison system? Um, how are you to interact with the prisoners? And other, you, know, you can't hug them like this. You can't do that inside the prison. So what are some of those real rules that you need to follow? And I would say that about 10% of our time spent over three whole months is probably on that subject. The other 90% is spent talking about the unity of Jesus Christ. Because when we go in there, those men are looking at the church. And they're meeting Jesus Christ right there in that moment. And if you've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are divided over specific things, then that's what they're going to take away from it. But if we go in there and we are one in Christ, we are there to show the love of Jesus Christ, that speaks volumes. In fact, the, the testimonies that the men share on the last day after being there for four days really boils down to, we were there for four days and we saw Jesus move. There were Baptists, Methodists, there were Lutherans, amen, praise God. This is the subject this morning, is on, is on the unity, the diversity, and the love of, of the church as it's played out in the real world. We are the church, is what he said. There's one particular individual, his name is Tommy Fisher. This was about six years ago. He shared his testimony. This is a man who was in street gangs, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He ran the gangs in prison. And he was one of those individuals who, when he heard of somebody who was turning to Jesus Christ, he would actually have them get beat up. So, that, you know, does that resonate? A little bit of Paul right there in the prison system with this guy named Tommy? Well, as time went on, the chaplain and others, they convinced Tommy that he should go through this Kairos prison ministry. And the way they did is they went to him and they said, hey, there's going to be food in there. And that's all it took. He said, say no more. And he went inside there. And he went in there for the very strict purpose of eating food, but he came out with a much different story. He said, I went for the food not to get saved. He said, but God had set me up. <laughs> and Mark this, he said, you know, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus, just Jesus' presence knocked him off of his horse. He said, I know for a fact I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. I felt like Paul felt. 
And I want to remind you, in, in Acts chapter 9, Paul, when he was walking on the road to Damascus, he was going to persecute Christians. And Jesus showed up and knocked him off of his horse, as Tommy said. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me, Jesus says. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Mind you, Jesus has already ascended. He's showing up for the purpose of interfacing with Paul specifically. And he says, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Paul was persecuting the very presence and manifestation of Jesus Christ in the world. We are the church. And then he goes on to say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. May I be so bold to say that in a very similar way, many who come to faith encounter Jesus in their daily interactions with Jesus Christ, his body. Like, this is just one of those profound truths, you know? It's just so, it's so obvious, and yet over the last two weeks, it's just amplified for me. When people encounter Jesus Christ, they are often encountering Jesus Christ through his body, the church of Jesus Christ. Who is the church? We are the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ, the very body of Christ in this world. In tears, this is what Tommy had to say. He said, I really used to be a monster. The only reason I don't know if I killed a man is because I didn't go back and ask him if he died. Because he had shot many people in his life. But ministries like Kairos go inside them walls and they show a man God's love. Man, if I could just tell anybody about Kairos, it's this, it changes lives. God gave back my life, and I am happy for it, is what Tommy said. This is less than three minutes long of a testimony. If you want to go check it out, just Google Tommy Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, and you can listen to it yourself. And if you don't get drawn to tears in that testimony, I don't know what will, friends. Well, that is a subject, that is the subject of my text this morning, is the body of Jesus Christ as it pertains to you. We are the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Where do you find Jesus Christ in this world? It's in us, the church. There are many metaphors that are used in the scripture to describe the people of God, and then it's expanded upon in the New Testament, right? So there's Old Testament illustrations and metaphors of God's people, and then there's New Testament metaphors of God's people, and some of them overlap, things like a marriage relationship. God chose Israel as his wife. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, it says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. In Isaiah 65, 5, it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then in the New Testament, we read about how Christ has taken the church as his bride in order that he might present to us the splendor of his majesty through his bride, the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 goes on, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. The bridegroom pursues his chosen bride. God chooses one of the most intimate earthly relationships to describe his relationship with his people, the marriage relationship. And then there's the vine and the vineyard that's dependent on God, right? God planted Israel as his vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Psalm 88 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. And then you come to the New Testament. John chapter 15 verse 5, it says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. So now there's this picture that we are dependent on God as his vineyard. 
as his branches. And then we are also described as the flock that's tenderly and lovingly cared for by God himself. God shepherded Israel as his flock. We read this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 10. And then in John chapter 10, in the New Testament, remember when he says, Hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then there's other relationships and metaphors, like father-child relationship. There's a metaphor of the building. There's a metaphor of the foundations, the rocks on which Christ stands. Why is this so important? Well, by the time we arrive at the New Testament, we find a metaphor that is not used in the Old Testament and is unique to the New Testament church. There is no Old Testament equivalent to this. We are, as Paul loves to say, the body of Jesus Christ. This is significant because this is our unique position in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The church is not a building. It's not a structure. It's not an organization. Who is the church? We are the church. The church is a communion. It is a fellowship of believers. It is a united body of Jesus Christ, a visible demonstration of who he is. The subject of our message this morning and the truth that Paul is trying to convey to us is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul had a great love for the Corinthians. I like to sum up the book of 1 Corinthians like this. Okay. A surprising letter to a messed up church. That's how I like to summarize it, because, because the way that Paul pursues that body of, of the Corinthians there is in a manner of love. He's speaking clearly to believers, people who have faith in Jesus Christ. But if you were to take a laundry list of the issues that they were dealing with there in that, Corinth, the, that Corinthian church, you would be far from removed to think that they have anything to do with Jesus Christ. And yet, Paul recognizes them as those who have faith. They were dealing with things like human philosophy, and they tried to bring that into the church. They created little cliques under certain teachers, you know, I'm of this person, and, and then we're of this people, and then you, suddenly you have all these different cliques formed within the body of Jesus Christ. They tolerated sin, and they lacked accountability for one another and for, for themselves. And as a result, they became gluttonous, they were drunk, they dealt with sexual evil, and they allowed the same sort of pagan worship and idolatry that was happening right outside those doors to infiltrate the body of Christ. They were carnal, they were selfish, they were heretical, and they were divisive. To sum it up, they were craving into the same pressure as the culture that was around them. It was just knocking all around their footsteps. And when we get to chapter 12, Paul focuses attention on the abuse the negligence, and the ignorance of spiritual gifts, and he reinforces for us the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the church. We are one with Christ. We are one body baptized into one spirit, and each of us are crucially important to demonstrating Jesus Christ in this world right now. So with that, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to cover verses 11 to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who approaches to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you that we are all here under the same one spirit of Christ. That we've been baptized into the body of Christ and we get to all drink of your spirit. We, we are now the temples of the living God. God the spirit living in each and every one of us. Lord, your church is marked by your spirit. And each one of those in here who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are marked by your spirit. We are of the church, Lord. So may you exalt the message this morning as we, as we take a deeper and closer look and a more reverential significance of your body. Lord, we thank you. Be with the, the pastors as well at the, the North American Baptist Conference that's taking place this weekend. Be with Pastor Nick, Pastor Gorman, the Powell family, and others who are going to be there um, today. And, and we, we trust that you've, you've blessed their time together. Lord, we thank you for our time together. And may you, may you um, fill us with your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this is the, the topic this morning. It is the body of Christ. Paul loves this illustration of the body, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. And I, I just I think of the, the human anatomy. It's just so fascinating to me to think that there's just one single cell egg. One cell, and a sperm meets that one cell, and then that one cell divides into two, and then that two into four, and then that four into eight, and, you know, and then it just, yeah, and then you do the math, right? It just, it just exponentially, it just explodes over time. And each cell knows exactly where it belongs. I mean, it's not like that one egg just becomes two eggs, and then four eggs, and then eight eggs, and so on. No, as that cell, as that cell multiplies, there's intelligence behind it. Like, at some point, the finger is formed. And you can point at people because you've got cells that know exactly they belong right there in the finger. It's quite fascinating to think that that one cell has all the information needed to create the entire human anatomy. 100 trillion cells. Don't try and count that in one day. 206 bones, 600 muscles, 78 organs. We have about 100,000 hairs on our head. I'm not going to get into that. And we have 9,000 taste buds. It's quite fascinating to think that those cells knew exactly where they belonged within your own body. 
You see, that energy, that instruction by which the, the body operates stems from the head, right? So, so when I move my arms around, when I'm pointing fingers at people, it's not because my finger is like, has its own mind and it's doing this thing. No, it, it all comes from its source, the head. I've never seen anybody who you could call a person who lacks a head. I've seen people who don't have an arm, and they're still a person, but the head is a very crucial and important part of the body. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the what? The head, that is Christ Christ is the head of the body from which all instruction, energy, and resources flow to make every part of the body function. Jesus is the head. He is the head of the living body, his church. Who is the church? We are the church. Jesus is the head of his church, his body. And then he goes on to say, at the, at the end of verse 12, so it is with Christ he says, so it is with Christ, right? Very similar to Paul, to Paul when he encountered Jesus, he said, why are you persecuting me? Like what, what would fit here is not so it is with Christ. What would fit here is so it is with the church. Paul is speaking of the church, and yet he substitutes those words, the church, and he says, so it is with Christ. In other words, he's associating the very church with Christ himself. And it's possible that he's using it in shorthand, right? He might be saying, so it is with the body of Christ. But how many of us wake up in the morning and say, hey, we're going to go to the Christ this morning. I'm going to go and encounter Christ in the church this morning. Well, I think Paul is saying something very significant in this passage. I think he's saying the church is the representation of Christ, right? And, and just at a risk of sounding like this, some mystical thing, weird incarnation thing, there's more to it than just that, and I'm going to get into that in a moment. He doesn't say so it is with the church. And what he's emphasizing is this, that you and I, as believers, are one with the living Christ. We are one with the living Christ. We are one living organism through which pulses the eternal life of God by the work of the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. Paul wants us to see this incredibly profound interrelationship between Jesus and his body, the church. The true church is the visible demonstration of Jesus Christ. I, I think sometimes we use this excuse, right? I'm a part of the universal church, and there's some truth to that. Don't get me wrong. Only those who have been baptized by the work of the Spirit are part of the church. But sometimes we use that as an excuse not to do anything, I am a part of the universal church, but the universal church is always, always depicted, depicted with action in his church. Where do you see Christ? I mean, look around you. If you see his body, you are seeing Jesus. Who is the church? We are the church. Paul says, so it is with Christ. I don't want to create this, this weird, like I said, incarnation thing where like we're just this weird incarnation of Jesus Christ. But we are a very, very real display of Jesus Christ in this world. In a similar way, Jesus was a visible demonstration of the Trinity. You remember that? 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, In him all the fullness of the deity dwells in what bodily form? So it's not this weird spiritual thing that Jesus is representing the Trinity. What it's saying is, in his bodily form, Jesus represents the fullness of the deity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Is Jesus the Father? No. Is Jesus the Holy Spirit? No. And yet, in his bodily form, he was a representation of all three. The fullness of the deity did dwell in him, it says. Turn with me to John chapter 14 for a moment. John chapter 14. This is so significant, and it has so much to do with our example in the church. John chapter 14, and starting in verse 7. This is, this is Jesus offering some comfort to his disciples. And then he goes on in the, about the middle of chapter 14, and in verse 7 he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. This is Jesus speaking now. If you would have known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him because you have seen him. And you have seen him, it says. Have they seen the Father? No. Yet Jesus says, you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that is enough for us. <laughs> and he's like, I know you're not the Father. But if you just show him to me, that would be enough. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. And then verse 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus didn't, didn't put on, like, say, I am the Father. He, he recognized that the Father's different, but he said, if you see me, you see the Father. And if it's not enough that you would just believe that, then at least look at the works that I do, and then you would know for reality that I am of the Father. So in other words, you see Jesus, you see the Father. Is it possible that the same can be said of the church in reference to Jesus Christ? Is it possible that one would come to you and say to you, just show me the Christ and that would be enough for me? I think there is a spiritual reality here, an example for each one of us to follow. Church, show us the Christ and it is enough for us. Can we not say to them, to him, I have been with Christ. I have been with you for so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Christ. How can you say, show me the Christ? Do you not believe that I am of the Christ and the Christ is of the Father and the Father is in him who is in me? We are one with Christ. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but by the authority of Jesus Christ, who what? Dwells in me. Believe me that I am in the Christ and the Christ is in me or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. You see, we have been created to do good works in Jesus Christ. We are the visible demonstration of Jesus Christ. Can we with confidence say to an unbelieving world, have you not seen Jesus in me and in the church as it's operating the fullness of the deity? 
What an amazing, amazing spiritual reality that each of us share in Jesus Christ. Where does the world see Christ? I mean, serious question, where does the world see Jesus Christ? Well, I, I, I confess to you that I don't do this very well. But there is a world who's on the road to Damascus right now, and they're awaiting an encounter with Jesus Christ. And we, the church, are that visible demonstration of Jesus Christ. We literally can knock people off of their horses as Jesus' body. Do you get me? It's an exciting thought that you have been created for that purpose, to, to, to just generate more worship towards Jesus Christ. Where is the world supposed to see Christ? In the church, in his body. Do you know why you should have a love for the family of Jesus Christ? Because you love Christ. Do you know what happens when you love Jesus Christ? You love the body of Jesus Christ, his family. Paul says, so also is it with Christ. You know, I, I was doing a study of uh, the Samaritan woman just recently, and this was one of those rare occasions where Jesus, after encountering somebody, told them plainly, I am he. When, when, when the Samaritan woman said, when the Christ comes, he will make all things right, Jesus just plainly said, I'm he. I mean, I just think of that. Just, I mean, just think with me for just a moment, Okay. Just think with me, Jesus walks in the room, Jesus, the, the Jesus in bodily form walks in the room, and, he, and, he, and what are you going to do? What are you going to think? How are you going to feel? I mean, I think there are some people that would just joyfully run up to him, you know, um, knowing that he, he is the one that loved them since the foundation of the world. I don't think my reaction would be that way. I've, I've seriously considered this. I think, I think if Jesus walked in the room in bodily form, I think I would be fear-struck. He knows everything about me. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the ugly. And I would be fear-struck that the God who created everything, the universe and everything in it, who created me, knows everything about me. He has the power over my soul. And then this is how it plays out in my mind, that he would lay his hand on my shoulder and he said, don't be afraid. And that would be one of the most comforting words for anyone to hear because I know that I am one of his. Now, I'm not saying that we should be questioning our salvation before Jesus Christ. I think Jesus tells us what we, that we can know that we have salvation through him. But, but there's this reverential fear that grips you when you're in the presence of Jesus Christ. Does that same reverential fear play itself out in the world? We are the body of Jesus Christ. The church is extremely significant to the world. Both individually and collectively, we all have a part to play in it. So let's turn our attention now at the distinguishing characteristics of the church. So what does the church look like now, given that? Paul wants us to see the church, that the church is marked with unity, that is a oneness, that the church is marked with diversity, that we are all individually different and we rely on each other to make up the fullness of the body, and that we are to be marked with love love for Christ, and love for one another. First, let's look at Paul's demonstration of unity. He wants us to understand that the body is one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the Spirit. Now I know that these words, unity, diversity, and love, they've all been hijacked by our society. They've been hijacked. People are making something of them that they're not. Unity is just this hot topic, right? We we look at the families around us. We look at politics. We look at friends. We look at marriage relationships. and, And there's just so much division all around us. We don't really hear very many success stories of unity. We hear a lot about division. And yes, even in the church, there's somewhere between 2,000 and 9,000 denominations, if, if you just do the research on it, depending on who you look at. It's between 2,000 and 9,000 denominations. Now, we were just in John 14. Just fast forward just a moment. John chapter 17 and verses 20 to 23. I'm just going to read this to you very briefly. It says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me, by the way. We are the ones who have come to believe Jesus Christ through the word of the apostles, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Amen. There's this intimacy. Like we're eavesdropping right now into the prayer of Jesus Christ with the Father. There's this oneness, this, this amazing unity that Jesus experiences with the Father. And he's saying this kind of unity that we experience, he's praying would take place within the church. The church, Christ, Father, all one. The church being marked by the Holy Spirit. There's a question that, that, that just, ba- it just begs the question, does it not? Has this prayer been fulfilled? It is, it, are we still waiting for this to happen? Some are longing for this prayer to be fulfilled. You know, and so there are many thoughts that are probably infiltrating your minds right now. Well, that can't be true. Look at the world around us. Look at the church. And as tempting as it is to think that we can do it on our own, we can't. We think we can organize it, just do it, you know? We can prescribe ways to make church work. We can prescribe religious patterns, thinking, um, communion, tithing. We can prescribe our own attitude, you know, just check a box, do my part, I'm done. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. Look how Paul defends God's promise of unity in verse 13. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, he says. The indwelling spirit of Christ. Now we are forming a more appropriate union. We are forming a more appropriate visible demonstration of it. We cannot divorce verse 12 from verse 13. In other words, there's a oneness. But Paul's description of that oneness is revealed to us in verse 13 when he says we've all been baptized into one spirit. One spirit. There's this marvelous truth. We are immersed into the Spirit as Christ's body, right? And not only are you immersed into the Spirit, and now you become a part of God's church, but you drink. I mean, it says drink of the Spirit, but it's like flooding. It's like you're drenched with the Spirit. So on the one hand, you're immersed into the body of Christ. That's the moment that you put your place and your your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. You become one with Christ. You're baptized into the body. And in that same moment, you have been baptized, the Spirit in you. So not only are you baptized into the Spirit, but you drink of the Spirit. You are one now with Jesus Christ. 
Baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Spirit of God regenerates us and he places us in the body of Christ and then he indwells in us. And you might ask the question, how many of us, how many of us are baptized into this one spirit, the one body? Verse 13 says, we were all, it says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. How many of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ have been baptized by the work of the spirit? All of us. Every one of God's children has been baptized into the spirit. You are one now with Christ. It's kind of like water baptism, you know? You're immersed into the water, into this new environment, a new union, a new identification, a new oneness and restoration with Jesus Christ. It happens at the moment of faith. At the moment of faith, it's born in the believer, at the moment of repentance. This is when somebody says, I put all my trust and my hope in Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life that I could not, who died for my sins, so that when I'm judged before God, I can say with confidence, my sins are paid in full by Jesus Christ. When he said, it is finished, it is done. The good, the bad, the ugly. All of the body are now in the, the, the body of Christ, right? You don't get to choose who, who goes in God's family. <laughs> I mean, I know there are some of you who, who, who are hoping that when we go to heaven, there's going to be neighborhoods, you know, as long as I don't have to be with that person. But we have to recognize that person that you are trying to avoid has been bought with the, plush, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He is one with Christ as you are one with Christ. When Jesus prayed that prayer in John chapter 17, I think Jesus was looking forward to the great anticipation of the indwelling spirit of God in the body. He knows that we can't do it on our own. So he gives us a helper, the spirit of truth himself. By his sovereign grace, we are all baptized into the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ, of which Christ himself is what? The head. We are the church. The message of the body of Christ is a message of unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse seven, uh, 4 to 7 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Close book. We are one. We are one in Christ. We are not called to be spectators. We are called to participate. We get to participate. We get to participate. There are two camps of people in this world in this day and age. There are those who are one with Christ, and then there are those who are separated from the body of Christ. The important question we have to ask ourselves is, do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, there's this amazing union that takes place between you and Christ and the body. You have now been baptized into the body of Christ. But notice he goes on, he says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many, in verse 14, right? For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. First, we talked about the unity of Christ. Now we're going to look at the diversity of Christ. God distributes a variety of gifts to his people. Right? He, he distributes it as his grace, as his form of grace, as he wills. We looked at that, did we not? In verse 11, he says, who portions to each one individually as he wills. 
So you have been given gifts by the work of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace. Like as a gift, it's a good thing which you have been given in Jesus Christ. God doesn't want everyone doing the same thing in the same way. I, for one, am very thankful that the church isn't walking around with a bunch of ozons. I think I would be very frustrated, personally. And there are two, there are two vantage points that, that Paul gives in this passage. The, one, the first vantage point is this. I am insignificant, I am insufficient, or I am unnecessary. That's vantage point number one. Vantage point number two is I think very highly of myself. So let's look at vantage point number one. It's critical that you minister in the energy of the Holy Spirit because you individually are irreplaceable in God's body. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Listen to this. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? There's a diversity in this. And I just want to take a moment, and I just want to honor those who are serving behind the scenes. Those who have a invisible ministry, as I like to put it, right? There are those who have visible ministries. You get in front of a crowd, it's, you know, anxiety, all that stuff accompanies it, sure, but it's very visible. There are many people in the body of Christ who are performing functions. They are exercising their spiritual gifts given to them by God's grace, and they are to be honored. They are to be honored, it says, more, with, with more honor, even. I think of my wife particularly, who when I am getting myself ready for going into the prison, three months, three months, okay, of meeting with people, that's a lot of time devoted towards this thing. I'm away from family and I'm with volunteers. And then I go into the prison and then I, and then I get to speak of how I saw, I saw the Holy Spirit, front row seats of the Holy Spirit when I'm in there working with these men. And then I come home and all the me, in, in all that time, my wife has been watching the kids and she's been caring for me and she's been praying for me. Now you tell me, who's got the greater ministry? My wife. She is so precious to the body of Christ. If she, did not, if she did not exercise those gifts that God gave her, I would not be able to exercise the gifts that God gave me. And it is like this within the body of Christ, that there are those who have been gifted with those invisible ministries. You are extremely crucial to the body of Christ. I'll never forget this. A, a man who, who for, I've just known him all my life, you know? And, and then I learned that, that he's been... He's been actually ministering to people behind the scenes in ways that just I had no idea. Like there's one person who was in a wheelchair, and he said every weekend he would go to the, he would go to the wheelchair, the guy in the wheelchair, and he would serve him faithfully. And I'm just thinking, like, that's your ministry? It seems like just so small on the grand scheme of things, but his faith will be rewarded in heaven. I'm convinced that this man is going to receive great rewards. So what is the proper value of those who serve in this capacity? Well, they're no less valuable, in my opinion, than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus laid his life down for you and for me. Your value is found not in what you are, but in whose you are. You are in Christ. The second advantage point is I, I think very highly of myself, right? There's almost this pride associated with it. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Let me just stop here for just a moment. I, I, I feel like, and this could be wrong, but I feel like people, generally speaking, will exalt the visible ministries, right? Now, I, I love receiving encouragement from the body. I love it, and I, and I encourage you to continue to encourage your pastors. I do. But are, are we distributing that same level of encouragement evenly across the body? Or are we only going to those who we see God working in? I can tell you as a fact, there are those in this body right here who are devoting themselves to these sort of ministries, and they, it says, are to, they, they require more honor. They bestow, we bestow the greater honor to those unpresentable parts. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member rejoices, we all rejoice together. There is no room for a hierarchy in this, right? It's not like over time you build this hierarchy of spiritual giftings, like you go from the the less visible ministries and then the next step in your your career growth as a Christian is, you know, uh, public speaking. And And then above that, there's, you know, the gift of tongues and all this stuff. Like it doesn't work like that. That's not what God is saying. If you are so gifted that everyone has to be as gifted as you, then you're missing the point. If you are the standard of spiritual maturity in the church by which everyone gets measured, then I would say you are closer to an infant than you think. None of us should be bored in the body of Christ. We all have a part to play in the body. The eternal weight behind everything you do is so extremely significant We should be excited about this, no? And I'm not saying you're not. (laughs) I'm just saying we should be. We should be and we are excited about these things. Find the place for you to exercise those God-given gifts that God has given you and don't be ashamed of it. Do not be ashamed of those gifts that God has given you. You are so extremely crucial to the body. I want you to experience the great joy that comes from serving Christ. This brings me lastly to love. How effective is unity and diversity without love? Well, I would suggest it can only go so far. Love is a distinguishing characteristic of the church. I, I've, I've been in an organization now as the most of my career, and there's a lot of diversity in that, in that particular career path. There's a lot of unity in that particular career path. But I would say that the love of the church is unmatched. The love of the church is unmatched. You cannot find this kind of love in God's body in an organization. Look what love looks like in the context of the new covenant. John chapter 3, verse 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. He goes on, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How is it that people see the body of Christ? It's through your love for one another. Jesus says this kind of love is not an option. It cannot be replaced. First John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Have they seen the Father? No. Have they seen the the physical Jesus in front of them? No. But if we love one another, God abides in us, it says, and His love is perfected in us. It is, by, it is the foundation, the undergirding of unity and diversity is love. If love is absent, then everything falls on its head. But with love, we become now that visible demonstration of Christ. I want to conclude with just, uh, just a short story. This happened just this past week, okay? And um, I can't be boasting, and you'll see why here in a moment. So I, I, was, I was on my way home um, to, to get measurements on my brakes. I've got a European car that uh, is probably older than it should be. I probably should just replace the thing as much as I'm spending on it. But there's these, there's these calipers on there that are very difficult to find. And so I'm just trying to get a quote for break, the brakes to get them replaced. And I had to go into Les Schwab to get the quote from them. Um, and they need to take measurements. So they said, I can't just tell you because your car is very unique. And so we've got to take measurements and all that stuff. And so how long does it take to take measurements on brakes? Five minutes, maybe 30 minutes tops, right? So I go into the Les Schwab, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, you know, they're going to be done with it. Give me the quote, and I'll be out on my way. I got work to do. I got, you know, I got my family to get back to and all this stuff. This is about noon now. And 30 minutes passes by, and nothing yet. And my car's, you know, they took my car in. <laughs> the car's not there, so you know that it's, it's sitting somewhere. And so I'm, I'm starting to get frustrated now. I'm starting to get frustrated. And this guy walks in. His name is Chuck. And um, they had this old, like, cowboy film thing on, right? Very Les Schwab-y style. And Chuck came in and he said, well, I, you know, I'm on my phone just perusing. And um, almost belligerent Chuck, right, just comes in and says, well, I haven't seen this video and, like, this stuff in a long time. And it's only me and him in there. I'm like, dude, like, keep it down, right? It's just you and me in here. Um, but I, I, I remember thinking in my mind, no, I'm going to put my phone down. I'm going to give this guy attention right now. You know, I'm just going to listen to him. I'm going to listen to his story. And so then I, I strike a conversation. Long story short, okay, um, he was a trucker for a long time, grew up in the Puyallup area, and he, he's retired now. And he was telling me stories about how with, with his trucking you know, career, there were times where he was getting paid three times as much as normal because of like, the nature of it. And I'm like, well, that's probably why you're retired right now, huh? He said, nope. He said, that's not why I'm retired. He said, I'm retired because I had to get heart bypass surgery done, and there's no way that they'll let me drive that truck after that. So then I was thinking... Now I must explain the gospel to him. I must. So then I asked, I asked Chuck, I said, Chuck, can I ask you a, a heavy question, a weighted question? Um, where are you going to go when you die? And he said, I don't know. I think heaven. He said, I'm at peace about it. And I thought, okay, um, why are you at peace about it? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, what's going to happen? He said, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, how can you be at peace? They're saying we're going to run the circle. And, and he's got a smile on his face the whole time. And, and, then, and then I asked him, like, are, are you a person of faith? And he said, you know, I, I used to go to church all the time. And I said, well, you know something about God then? And he said, yes. And I said, well, God, he tells us what his perfect law looks like. He tells us what righteous living looks like. And we walked through the Ten Commandments, and, and we both just walked through and said, yep, we failed there, we failed there, we failed there, you know. Yep, in a way, we failed there too. And then and I came back, and I said, all right, so you're going to die. You're going to be faced before your judge. How's that going to look for you? And he said, well, I don't know. And I'm like, you just told me um, how that's going to look for you. 
and then, and then it, it dawned on him that he will be judged. But, but then he remembered, not me, he remembered. He said, well, that's why Jesus came into the world. And I said, amen, hallelujah, praise God. What did Jesus do so that you don't have to be judged in that manner? And then he went on to explain that Jesus died for his sins. And then I added to that. I said, not only did he die for his sins, he lived the perfect lifestyle that you can live. He lived the perfect righteous life that you can live. And then he died on the cross for your sins, and all your sins now have been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he was resurrected. He was resurrected and he's alive. So you can trust and know that Jesus is exactly who Jesus says he is. And then he went on to talk about his history at the church. And then I came back and I said, Chuck, I'm going to ask you again. What's going to happen to you when you die? And he proceeded to say, I don't know. And I'm just thinking, like, I just, I'm just frustrated already, you know? Like, the whole reason why I even decided to listen to Chuck was, like, I'm thinking, they already took 30 minutes of my time, Les Schwab. There's nothing you can say to me, Chuck, that's going to upset me, so let's have this conversation. That's where my mind is going, right? Sinful. But thank God he takes sin and he makes good out of it. So, so he, he took, he, like, you know, after it was all said and done, I'm just like, that's why. Okay, anyway. So, so then I just say, Chuck, we just talked about this. What's going to happen to you when you die? How are you going to be judged? And we walked through it all over again. And then you could just see a click in his mind. And a big smile, the biggest smile I've seen on Chuck in the hour and a half I spent with him there is they're measuring my breaks. The biggest smile I've seen on his face. And I'm thinking, God just took hold of him right there. And I said, Chuck, can I pray for you right now? And he said, yes. And I, and, I, and I laid hands on him, and I prayed. And I kid you not, the moment I said, in Jesus' name we prayed, Les Schwab comes down and says, we have your quote. Tell me that doesn't strike a chord with you. And then I called my wife, and I confessed everything to her. <laughs> and I said, that man, that man was on the road to Damascus. And he was knocked off of his horse. All because I decided to take a moment and, and albeit out of frustration, mind you, but there was, there was a spirit-led device in all that, right? I'm, just, I'm sharing that. There's ugly sometimes in the ministries that we do. But I, I want to ask you this question in concluding. What are your gifts? What are the gifts that God has given you? I don't think he wants that to be a mystery to us. And I think we have to really honestly evaluate that. We have to be very sober-minded about it, as Paul likes to say in Romans 12. Like, how, how, what are the gifts that God gave you? And what are the ways that you can reflect God's glory with those gifts? And in what way do they, do they intermingle with the church? Like, I know, I know that for me, I can't exist apart from everybody else in the church. You all collectively add value to the, to the gift sets that I have. And so in what way is God... So when, when you find yourself frustrated with uh, somebody in the body of Christ, could it be because they have a different set of gifts? Could it be that they, they think differently than you in terms of how... I can tell you that those Lutherans, those Methodists, especially the Roman Catholics, we have very different doctrinal differences. But when we come into the prison, we are all very much aligned. We know whose we are, and we know what the purpose is of us going in there. And it becomes a powerful testimony of the body of Christ. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your body. We are your church. As Paul said, so it is with Christ, so it is with the church. Father, help us. We, we, we know that you provide the Spirit, the Helper, and it requires an attitude of submission and recognition that your church is to be feared. There is a reverence. There is an awe. Your church has the power to stop people in the middle of their tracks and recognize 
the infinite value that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be one, just as you are one with Christ. Lord, that that prayer that Jesus prayed years ago is, becomes for us a manifestation, a visible demonstration of who we are now, whose we are now in you. We lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.